Turn in your Bibles to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. It's where we are this evening as we continue on in our verse-by-verse study of this book. And we come now to verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6. And I'm going to be preaching a message tonight entitled, The Cancerous Sin of Pride. The Cancerous Sin of Pride. 1 Corinthians chapter number 4, beginning at verse 6. These are the words of God. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your own sakes, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? In the text before us, the Apostle Paul addresses one of the most hideous, heinous, carnal, soul-damning, church-destroying, gospel-defying sins that could ever be committed. The sin of pride is a cancer that begins in the heart and eats its way out until the infected person is entirely consumed and destroyed. And like cancer, pride is not detected until its awful symptoms begin to manifest themselves outwardly. The spiritual cancer of the soul contaminates not only the one infected, but everyone in its vicinity. Pride will not only eventually make you sick, but it will immediately make sick everyone around you. Your pride does not just affect you, but there are implications that go beyond you. And pride is a disgusting sin that is diametrically opposed to the person of Jesus Christ as sin can be. You are never more unlike Jesus than when you are puffed up in pride and vanity. Pride should never be named among the Lord's people. It should be easier for us to speak of a humble devil than a proud church. Pride was one of the chief motivating factors in the original sin that plunged all of humanity into spiritual death. And every subsequent sin is a replication of this original sin of pride. Pride is the creature exalting his will over God's. Pride is self-centeredness that causes you to believe that you are foremost, that you call your own shots, that everything and everyone is to revolve around you. Pride is looking in the mirror and singing, How great thou art. Pride is easily offended. Pride says, I am the victim, and the world is out to get me. Pride throws a big pity party. Pride thinks that everyone should cater to your needs and do everything to appease you. Pride causes you to think that everyone is doing you wrong while maintaining your innocence all the while. Proud people talk about how often they are cheated, but they never recognize any sins that they commit in and of themselves. Pride will keep you 
from obeying what the Bible clearly commands for the fear of how you will look before the world and the church. There's nothing more hostile to the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace than the wretched sin of pride. Worldly wisdom and humanistic philosophy that had so affected this church had bolstered up the Corinthians in a state of pride that would wreck their church and damn their souls. And Paul, in his wisdom, he saw the train tracks that they were heading down. He he saw the direction that they were going in. And in this text, he confronts their sin, not to disgrace them, but to save them from their own self-combustion. And so I've broken this text up into three simple headings. I've, I've endeavored to make this as simple as possible because I don't want you to get caught up in any of the details. I want you to be examining your own heart as we consider this sin of pride. And so we're going to look at the assessment of pride, the admonition of pride, and the absurdity of pride. So beginning with the assessment of pride, look with me at verse number 6. Paul says this, And these things, brethren... Now with this phrase, with these things, these things, Paul is beginning the conclusion of the first major section of the letter. Remember that I I told you that chapter 1 verse 10 all the way through chapter 4 verse 21 is one grammatical unit. And when Paul says, now these things, he is primarily and specifically referring to everything between chapter 3 and verse 5 and chapter 4 and verse 5. Chapter 3 and verse 5 is where Paul was speaking directly of himself and other ministers and he was using figurative allegories to present the role of Christian ministers as farmers and builders and servants and stewards. I hope some of you are, are remembering some of the messages you've already heard in 1 Corinthians. And now Paul is going to explain what he's been doing for the last chapter. That should... Peek your ears. That should grab your attention because Paul is about to do something that he doesn't do very often. He's about to give us a little bit of autobiographical insight to his own line of thinking. Now, we wish he would do this more often because as Peter even says in his epistle, our brother Paul wrote some hard things to understand. Uh, But here in verse 6, Paul is about to break down what he's been doing for the last chapter and he's going to explain to us what the purpose was for all these allegories and metaphors. And this is very helpful in our understanding of the text. I mean, imagine the Corinthians reading this. And they get into chapter 5, and Paul is talking so much about himself and Apollos, and he's talking about farmers working a field and builders building a building. And the Corinthians were probably sitting there thinking, what does this have to do with us and our problems? And perhaps maybe some of you have been wondering some of the same things over the last several weeks. Well, Paul is now saying, here's my point. Here's here's my point. Here's what I want you to get out of this. Now, these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes. Now, what does it mean to transfer something in a figure? I have transferred in a figure. Well, it's very simple. It just means to use figurative language to teach a greater principle. That's all he's saying. I used figurative language. And I used figurative language that transferred these truths to me and Apollos. So Paul says, all of this talk about Apollos and me and Cephas, that was really for your benefit. 
That was really for you to understand something about yourself. Paul was not just trying to teach the church about the role of pastors and how they should structure their eldership. No, Paul was teaching these things so that they could apply them to their own lives, their own problems. Here's rule number one in the Christian life. As you read the Bible, apply every passage in context, in context, to your own life and situation. Never read anything and say, well, this doesn't apply to me. Paul directly intended for the Corinthians to apply these principles to themselves. He presented them this way because he endeavored to be gentle and gracious. That's why he used figurative language. Because he did not want to come in and browbeat them and tear them down and discourage them. He was patient even with these stiff-necked Corinthians. Remember, Paul said at the beginning of chapter 3, he said, I couldn't speak unto you as unto spiritual. I had to speak unto you as carnal men, even as unto babes in Christ. And because he had to speak to them as babes in Christ, he used these figurative language. He used this figurative language and he transferred these teachings to himself. Let me give you an example. This will help you understand what Paul is doing. Okay? When a father needs to have a conversation with his son that might be a little awkward or a little unpleasant, here's what he will do. He will say, Now son, when I was your age, I did this and I did this and I made this mistake and I made that mistake and I learned from them and then I changed and I did this and this. What is the father doing when he does that? Is he just trying to give his son an autobiographical lesson of himself? No, he's trying to teach his son so that his son will apply those lessons to his own life without being so direct, without being so awkward, without saying, son, listen to me, this is what you need to do. So Paul was speaking of himself, speaking of Apollos, teaching these principles that he wanted the Corinthians to apply to themselves. So what did he want the Corinthians to learn from these figures and these allegories? What was the lesson? Verse 6. I have in a figure, transferred to myself and to Apollos, for your sake, these things, that ye might learn in us, so with us as your example, that ye might learn in us, not to think of men above that which is written. He wanted them to learn not to exalt and boast in men when God alone is the only proper object of praise and adoration and glory and worship. That is what he's been trying to get the Corinthians to understand for the last chapter. That is what he's been trying to get us to understand for the last month. We should not exalt anyone or any group or any mortal above that which is written. And he used himself and Apollos as illustrations for this lesson. Now, surely, if there has ever been any man worth boasting in, would it not have been a wise pastor and skilled teacher like Paul? Or would it not have been a charismatic orator like Apollos, one of the greatest preachers ever? You might think, well, if we're going to boast in men, let's boast in Paul. Let's boast in Apollos. But Paul very plainly teaches 
that neither of them deserve to be lauded and praised beyond the biblical parameters. And if Paul himself is not above these principles, no one is. No one is. Not you, not me. I want us to stop and consider this phrase. He says, not to think of men above that which is written. Above that which is written. What does he mean, above that which is written? Paul is calling the Corinthians to live within the boundaries of God's word. It is the Bible that defines the worth of human beings. It is the Bible that defines the worth of human beings. The world cannot define the worth of human beings. The world has no objective standard for the worth of human beings. Because some human beings, they will exalt to this pedestal and lift up as demigods and other human beings, they value so little that they will murder them in the womb. So the world has no objective standard on how to value human beings. God is the one who sets the standard. So far in our study of 1 Corinthians, we have seen Paul reference Scripture on five different occasions to undergird his argument against human wisdom and the pride that it produces. Five times he's done this. And as Paul is summarizing, I want us to summarize. So turn back to chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 19. And Paul says this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Human wisdom, which is the originator and the building block of pride, is a frontal attack and assault on the glory and grandeur of God. And make no mistake about it, God will annihilate it. On the last day, all of the vain philosophies of men All of the presuppositions of the worldly teachers, they will all be destroyed. They will be manifested for the stupidity that they are, and only the truth of God will reign. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 31. Paul says that, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Do you see what Paul is doing? He is systematically, with scripture as his sword, cutting down any stems of pride that could remain in the human heart. He says, if you're going to boast... If you're going to glory, glory in the Lord. If you're going to exalt something, exalt Jesus Christ. And then he says, that I have not seen, nor man heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man, or ear heard, the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Now this is not talking about heaven. This is not talking about eternity. This is talking about God's eternal purpose for the salvation of, and sanctification and glorification of his people. What Paul is saying here is that truth is revealed truth. If you are going to know anything at all about men, 
about God, about the history of the world, about the purpose of the world, you will only come to know that through the revelation of the Spirit of God. You have no reason to think that you are some wise philosopher. Because if you know anything at all, it was revealed to you of God. All truth is revealed truth. 1 Corinthians 3.19 Paul says, For the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And this is a quote from Job 5.13. He quotes Isaiah 29.14, Jeremiah 9.23, Isaiah 64.4, and now he's quoting Job 5.13. He takes the wise in their own craftiness. God himself will hunt down those who exalt their own ideas and their own teachings above that which he has given in his word. He will hunt them down, he will judge them, and he will destroy them. And everyone who follows after those teachings is opposed to his teachings. And then in verse 20, And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. That is a quote from Psalm 94, verse 11. You see what Paul has been doing now. Now when we, when we take a look at the book from, from a kind of 180 foot level, that's why I tell you that I hope you're not just reading this book in the sections in which we're preaching them. I hope that you're reading this book at home in your own personal devotional time. And when you read this book in, in chapter sections, in a couple chapters at a time, you're able to get the big picture of what Paul is doing. And you see that what he's been doing for the last chapter is cutting down the self-exaltation and the puffing up that was going on in Corinth. And he was hitting all the different reasons, all the different blocks upon which they would build their own personal kingdoms. And he was cutting them down and demolishing them by quoting the scriptures. And he said, I used myself as an example so that you would not think of men above that which is written. You do not need human wisdom to augment the teachings of this book. You do not need a self-help coach to help you in your spiritual walk. You do not need a 12-step plan to be more like Jesus. You need the Word of God. You don't need a checklist. You need the Bible. You need the Holy Spirit residing in you, conforming you unto the image of Christ. Do you know why holiness and Christ-likeness is so hard? It's because it's so simple. It's merely just read the Bible and do what it says and be like Jesus. That's it. Oh, but what a task that is. And so we want to find something that we can do in our flesh, that we can do in our own strength, that we can say, I have accomplished this. I have achieved this. I have done this. I am taking credit for this. And when we do that, we start heading down the road of pride. Paul uses the word of God to dismantle even the possibility of human thinking and worldly insight and man's effort of having anything valuable to bring to the table. And in so doing, he takes away any reason that we might have of boasting in ourselves, in our accomplishments, in our beliefs, or in our knowledge. And with this assessment of pride, Paul is hitting at the root of the issue. He is cutting to the heart. 
See, why is worldly wisdom so damning? Why are factions in the church so destructive? Why is preacher boasting so heinous? Why is self-confidence so dangerous? Because all of these things serve as the ingredients to the cancerous sin of pride. And listen to me, friend. Pride in self and worship of God cannot simultaneously exist in the same heart. God cannot be worshipped with a proud heart. This is the assessment of pride. Paul is naming it. Paul is defining it. Paul is objectively stating his mission. But now I want you to see the admonition of pride. The admonition of pride. He says at the end of verse 6, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. Thus far, Paul has only spoken in indicatives. All he's done is explain himself and set the stage. He's explained what he's been doing. Now he is going to tell us what he wants us to do in response to his lessons and his teachings. It's as if he has cited in the crosshairs on the issue at hand, and that issue is pride. But now he's about to give an imperative. He will now issue a command that must be obeyed. Notice how systematic and methodical the apostle is. He breaks down his own train of thought. He speaks very plainly. He speaks very openly about the sin that he is confronting. I think he knows his audience. I think he knows how thick-headed we can be. I think he knows how hard of understanding we can be. And so he wants to make sure that we do not miss what he is about to say. It's as if he's placing the ball on the tee. He's been doing that for the last several chapters. And now he's about to take out his club and swing for the green. This imperative is well where Paul's arguments meet the shoe leather of the Corinthians. He says that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. To be puffed up literally means to be exalted above. That no one of you be exalted above anyone else. This is exactly what our pride causes us to do. Because we have this incredibly high and overestimated view of ourselves, we begin to foolishly think that we are better than others when in fact we are not. That is what our pride causes us to do. It puffs us up against one another. And we begin to walk around that because of something we have done or because of something we have contributed that we have claim of superiority above other people. To be proud is to be sinful. To be proud is to conform to the likeness of Satan and not the likeness of Christ. We must obey the command of the word of God and not be puffed up one over another. That is the admonition of pride. Paul says in no uncertain terms, I do not want any of you to be puffed up for one against another. And this is not looking around and realizing that God has given us things he hasn't given to others. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is not talking about God revealing truth to you that he has not revealed to others. Paul is not saying that you are not more moral than others, that you don't know more than others, that you're not more 
far along than others. What Paul is saying is that you're not the reason for any of that, and therefore you cannot take the credit for any of that. Let no one of you be puffed up for one against another. Pride in churches destroys the unity that God commands His people to have. And if we are not dwelling together in unity, we will not be worshiping together in unity. If we are not worshiping together in unity, we are no church at all. You will not be able to worship alongside other people that you think you are so much better than. You will not be able to share the gospel with people that you think you are so much better than. If you do not realize that but for the grace of God, you would be just as bad off as the worst sinner on the face of this earth, you will never be able to be an effective witness for Christ. Your pride will keep you from having a testimony. Your pride will keep you from understanding and realizing that Jesus has done anything for you at all. Your pride will hinder you from even seeing your need to go to Christ. Your pride will send you to hell. Now I want you to see, thirdly, the absurdity of pride. The absurdity of pride. We've seen the assessment of it, how it is defined, what it looks like, what it causes in us. We've seen how cancerous and destructive it is. We've seen the admonition against it, that none of us are to be exalted and lifted up above one another. But I want you to see the absurdity of it. Christian, if you are struggling with the sin of pride, and by the way, all of us commit the sin of pride. None of us are removed or not vulnerable to the sin of pride. All of us are susceptible to this sin. But if you realize that you commit this sin, if you are struggling against this sin, and if you do not want to commit this sin, then you are on the right track. And perhaps seeing just how ludicrous and idiotic this sin is will help you in your fight. But if you hear of the sin of pride and you think, well, that can't be referring to me. Well, I know how bad I am. I've met some people that threw such big pity parties for themselves that their pride had blinded them to their own pride. If you make excuses for your pride, if you refuse to call it your pride... Friend, you're in serious trouble. You must see that it is your pride that keeps you from coming to Christ. You must see that it is your pride that keeps you from following and doing what the Lord Jesus has said to do. If you have ever had this conversation in your mind, if you have ever said, well, I know what the Bible says, but I think that people would perceive it wrongly, and I don't want to do it because of their perception... That is pride that is keeping you from doing what the Bible says to do. May you see just how foolish it is for you to puff yourself up against others. Paul will lay bare the repulsive sin of pride with a very familiar tactic in verse number 7. 
he will ask three rhetorical questions that all have resounding implied answers. Let us consider the absurdity of pride. Question number one. For who maketh thee to differ from another? To the one who boasts in something unique about himself, Paul asks, What makes you so special? To the one who lifts himself up above others, Paul asks you, What makes you any different than anyone else? What is the cause of this difference in you? Paul does not deny that there are those differences. But Paul is asking, what is the effective agent that is making these differences? And of course, the answer is God. It is God who made us and not we ourselves. And anything about us, whether natural, from birth, whether developed over time, anything about us that makes one man better than another or different than another finds its source in the creative sovereignty of God. The possessor of his peculiarities is not the cause of his own peculiarities. It is God who makes men to differ one from another. God does not love you because you are so special. Rather, you are special because the undeserved and unmerited love, mercy, and favor of God was placed upon you from before the foundations of the world and you became a product of distinguishing grace. Who makes you to differ? God makes you to differ. It is the grace of God which distinguishes you. It is not anything that you do which distinguishes you. And Christians are often the worst at understanding this concept. Christians need to be reminded of this when they begin to boast in their superior theological knowledge or when they begin to boast in their cultural standing and cultural convictions and cultural standards. One commentator quipped, speaking of Christians that are of the more Calvinistic ilk of thinking, he says, Calvinists say that they alone among Christians teach that no glory can accrue to the creature and that all glory must go to the Creator alone. Having said this, they glory in the fact that they said it. Now I know that many of you are either the only believer in your family, and if you're not the only believer in your family, you're the only solid, robust believer in your family. But brothers and sisters, let me remind you that your sound doctrine, your superb theology, your convictions, it's nothing that you can even begin to take credit for. What makes you to differ? Why did you believe Christ while others rejected? Why do you understand biblical truths that others never grasp? Don't answer this question by telling me that you make better decisions than other people. Are you going to attribute your salvation to your own will? I would hope not. Are you going to attribute your theological insight to your own intellect? Well, I would hope not. We are where we are because there is an omnipotent God in heaven who makes men to differ from one 
another. He has saved you for his own glory. And he has led you into truth that he might be glorified. And when you boast in yourself for where you are, you contradict the very purpose of God placing you there. He placed you there so that he might be glorified, not that you might be lifted up. Who makes you to differ, brother and sister? It is God that makes us to differ. Then Paul asks this question. And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? The implied answer here is absolutely nothing. See, the first step to becoming proud is forgetting that every good thing about you is a gift from the hand of God. There is nothing that we have that we did not receive from Him. Every good gift comes from the Father above. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says in John 3, 27, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. So let me list for you some things which men often boast in that are purely the gifts of God. Number one, your physical birth. Your physical birth is a gift from God. You had no say in the matter. You did not vote on it. You did not give your opinion on it. You did not argue for one situation or the other. You had nothing to do with it. You contributed nothing towards it. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. It was God who determined that you would be born in the time that you were born in, in the place that you were born in, to the parents you were born to, in the ancestral line you were born in, into the culture that you were born in. Who makes you to differ? God makes you to differ. I've never met a white man that was a white man because he chose to be a white man. And I've never met a black man that was a black man because he chose to be a black man. Now, I know there's people that have tried. I've never met a man that was a man because he chose to be a man. Though there are people that have tried. And God thinks they're fools. Because it is God who makes us to differ one from another. Your physical birth is a gift from God. Secondly, your salvation. Or your second birth. Your salvation is 100%, absolutely, completely, entirely, positively, fully, the complete soul gift of God that you contribute nothing to. You were not looking for it. You were not working towards it. You were not asking for it. You were not searching for it. You were not trying to attain it. You did not even know you were lost until God opened your eyes and regenerated you and saved you. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now where do you find your contribution in that text? Where were you in eternity past as God decreed to send his son to shed his blood on Calvary's cross? Where were you 2,000 years ago as Jesus of Nazareth walked to Calvary's hill and gave his life? Where were you as the Spirit of God descended into the world and began to convict and to regenerate the hearts of men? You were a rebel. You were running from God. You were shaking your fist at the Almighty. But God, by His effectual love, by His steadfast grace, overcame your rebellion and made you His own. You didn't contribute to what God has done in your soul. Romans 9. And I know we're hitting the mountain peaks tonight. Romans 9 and verse 15. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Even more bluntly there, does Paul say, It is not man who strives so hard to attain to salvation and God sees his effort and God helps those who help themselves. It has nothing to do with him that willeth and him that runneth. You can try with all of your might to be the most moral lost person that you can be and yet you will still be lost if God does not reveal Christ to you. And God, by His own grace and His own glory, can take the chiefest of sinners who wants nothing to do with morality and goodness, make them a trophy of His grace. John, chapter number 1 and verse 12. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. God gives you the power to become His Son. You did not attain that power by a choice that you made or a prayer that you prayed. Do not be proud in your faith. He gave them power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. Now watch this. Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now if you take all of those knots out of it, it simply just says, which were born of God. Not by your own will, not by the own strength of your flesh, not by your lineage, not by your friends, not by your ancestry, not by church history, not by your knowledge, but of God. God is the reason why any of you are here tonight believing in His Son. Your salvation is the gift of God. And as a Christian, you ought not act like you are some member of some spiritually elite club that others are not invited to be a part of. You are simply a beggar who found bread, and you are to tell other beggars where they might find bread. 
Thirdly, your spiritual gifts. Your spiritual gifts are given to you by God. And when I say spiritual gifts, I'm obviously not talking about the charismatic revelation or sign gifts that ceased in the apostolic age. What I'm referring to with spiritual gifts are the particular abilities and spiritual skill sets that God gives to every believer, listen, for the purpose of ministering in the church. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, they're both chapters and passages that deal with our church membership and our service in the church, and that is why God gives you those gifts. God does not give you a gift so that you can boast yourself up and take pride in yourself and say, look at what I can do. I can preach. Look at what I can do. I can encourage. Look at what I can do. I can understand. No, God gives you those gifts so that you can use them for the edification and the blessing of others around you in the context of a local church. And all of us have different skill sets. We are all different members of the body. We are not all mouths. We are not all hands. We are not all eyes. No, we are different. And we have a diversity of gifts. But those gifts are not gifts that we procured in and of ourselves. Because the Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 11, But all these, that is all these gifts, worketh that one and the selfsame spirit, listen, dividing to every man severally as he will. Why do you have the gifts that you have? Because God saw fit to give them to you. And if you recognize that God has given, to, given you a particular gift, and if other believers around you recognize that God has given you a particular gift, and if you have a desire to exercise that particular gift, you are to use it for the glory of God as a blessing in His church. And fourthly, your ministry in the church, and when I say ministry in the church, I don't just mean your pulpit ministry, but your church membership and your ministry to other believers is something that God has given you. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, God hath set some in the church. First apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. God builds his own church. He does not need your help. He does not need my help. He is the one who assembles us here together, even tonight. Because of that, we have no reason to claim any glory or any credit or any fame or any fortune to anything we have done. Now, many of us have worked very hard to make this church a reality here in West Tennessee. Many of us have labored. We've stayed up late. We've gotten up early. We have been in the streets. We have, we have been on the internet. We have done all that we could do to get the gospel out and get the word out about what God is doing here. But any success from those efforts are due to God's blessing alone. All we can do is sow seed in water. Only God gives growth. Do you see why the apostle has been using these figurative allegories in these last couple of chapters? Your ministry in the church, your, your whole entirety of your Christian life is something that God has given to you. And then he asked this last question. Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? As if the Corinthians had any remaining legs to stand on, Paul finally obliterates and dismantles any reason for pride with this last question. If you received it, and by the way, everything good about you, you received. 
Why do you glory as if you had not received it? If God is the one who has given you all good things that you possess, why do you continue to boast in yourself or your own abilities or your own will? Well, the answer is this, because you are proud. Because you are committing the sin of pride. Rightly did Charles Spurgeon say, Be not proud of race, face, place, or grace. We have nothing to boast in. In and of ourselves, we are a sack of sin. In and of ourselves, we stand guilty before God. In and of ourselves, even our good deeds are as filthy rags before a holy God. And if you begin to puff yourself up because of the color of your skin, or because of where you were born, or because of your physical appearance, or because of your talents and abilities, or because of even your religious beliefs and convictions, or any such thing, you are behaving as the heathen who believe that they are their own gods. Every movement, every movement that, that is centered around the exaltation of some natural quality, whether it be a racial movement, whether it be a cultural movement, whether it be uh, an abolitionist movement, whether it be a prohibitionist movement, it's all based upon the fact that we are our own gods, that we call the shots, and that we have something inherently better about us, and that needs to be what unites us together. And the Christian religion says there's nothing in us good, no, not one. There's nothing we have to boast in. The only thing we can boast in is Jesus Christ our Lord, and that is what unites us together. Now, be very thankful for such things. Be thankful for who you are. Be thankful for where you come from. Be thankful for the ancestry God has placed you in. Be thankful for the family that you have. Be thankful for the church that you attend. Be thankful for the books that you read. Be thankful for the doctrine that you believe. Be thankful for the way that you live your life. Be thankful for the convictions that you have. But never forget that God is the reason for all of these things and not you yourself. God is the reason. Oh, if it were not for the grace of God, where would I be tonight? Where would you be tonight if it were not for the grace of God? Let me tell you, you wouldn't be here. You would have no interest in the preaching of the Word of God. You wouldn't be reading your Bible. You wouldn't be singing hymns. You wouldn't be singing psalms. You wouldn't be praying You wouldn't be attending a Wednesday night prayer service. Lost people have no interest in such things. Proud people have no interest in such things. But people who realize that they are recipients of divine grace and that they still are in desperate need of divine grace, they cling to such things. There has never been, there is no such thing as a self-made man. Never has been, Never will be. See, if anyone could have made such a claim, surely it would have been the Apostle Paul. I mean, the Apostle Paul was the chief of sinners. He was a persecutor of the church. And yet, now he is this godly apostle. Yet now he is this man of conviction. Yet now he is this man of wisdom and intellect. And surely if anyone could lay claim to something they had accomplished, it could have been Paul. He could have said, look at where I've came from. I've pulled myself up by the bootstraps. I've made myself into this wonderful Christian. But Paul says, 
by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he didn't just throw that around as some cliche. He believed it. He meant it. And you must learn to say this of yourself, but for the grace of God, there go I. Because by the grace of God, you are what you are. Brothers and sisters, the sin of pride destroys churches. It inhibits all spiritual growth. It keeps you from coming to Christ. The proud will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, if you do not deal with the pride in your own heart, you will not go to heaven when you die. Sinner, your soul is in grave danger. Before you can run to Christ for refuge, you must first humble your heart and you must cast off your pride. You must recognize your utter helplessness before the throne of God. And Christians... There are some of you that will never go further in the faith than where you are right now until you shake off this besetting sin of pride. You are at a spiritual blockade. You cannot get any further. You cannot progress in godliness. You cannot grow in holiness because you cannot get rid of your pride. When the Bible commands you to do something, you need to quit worrying about what others might think of your obedience and you need to consider what God thinks about your disobedience. There are many excuses for not publicly following after Christ as the Bible teaches and models, but they all simply boil down to pride. How may you not be hindered in your relationship with Christ by the vain conceits of your own hearts? Well, if I stopped here, I would do you a great disservice. Because thus far we have looked at an imperative. And we have looked at a command that even Christians cannot obey on their own. None of us are able to rid our hearts of pride on our own. And if we could, we'd be proud that we did it. So what is the antidote to pride? How do you overcome this sin? You're sitting there, you're saying, Pastor, I I understand how wretched pride is. I'm convicted that I commit this sin of pride and I want to get it out of my heart. What must you do? The only antidote to pride is to consider the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider the most humble man that ever lived. Consider how He eternally dwelled with the Father in heaven. Consider the splendor and majesty in which He resided. Consider how He voluntarily and willingly left the glories of heaven to condescend to dwell amongst proud sinners just like you. Consider how He was mocked and ridiculed. Consider how He was shamed. Yet consider that even as He was offended... Oh, he never responded by puffing himself up in pride. He humbled himself. He went deeper and deeper into the completion of the Father's will. Consider how he emptied himself and became obedient even to the death of the cross. Consider the meekness of the Lord Jesus as he hung, suspended between heaven and earth. Consider how the King of heaven was stripped of his garments, was beaten to a bloody mess, was crowned with a crown of thorns was nailed to a Roman cross. Consider how this humble man became a curse for his people. Consider how he never responded in smug arrogance, 
But even to the end, he prayed for his own murderers. Consider how Jesus laid down his life. Consider how Jesus gave up the ghost. Consider how Jesus yielded himself. Consider how the eternal Son of God was buried in a borrowed tomb. Consider how God the Father was totally pleased and fully satisfied with the work of His Son. Only when you consider these things will you begin to understand what humility is. Well, there was a, once a preacher preaching about the centrality of Christ, the purposes of God, the humble heart, and a woman said, Pastor, you forgot about my part. And he said, Dear woman, thank you for reminding me. Your part was to run away from God. Your part was to bolster up your own pride. Your part was to continue in disobedience. Your part was to think even higher of yourself than you already did. It was God that rescued you. It was God that condescended to you. It was God that convicted you. It was God that saved you. It was God that helped you to see yourself rightly. Consider all that Jesus did, brothers and sisters. Consider all that you did not do. Consider all that you could not do. And then consider your great need for the saving work of Christ. Consider that it is your only hope. Consider that there is nothing you have ever done whereby you would be able to present to God for His acceptance on the last day. And then, dear brother, dear sister, humble your heart and receive Christ. It is one thing to know the doctrines of grace. It is quite another to know the grace of the doctrine. And if you are here with a pride-infested heart, your only options are to perish in your sins and cast, or to cast yourself before Christ and receive Him as the cure for this cancerous sin of pride. May the Lord help us to stomp out the pride that is within us and to grow in greater humility towards God and towards one another. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us tonight. Oh Lord, do not just convict us and beat us down. But Lord, when you have humbled us, do not tarry in turning our eyes to look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might see the answer to our sins, that we might see the antidote to our sickness, that we might see the Savior of our souls. Father, to that one here tonight that is bound in their own pride, would you humble them by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh God, thank you for what you're doing in our midst tonight. By your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.